All right, good morning, everybody. We are ready to jump right into the Word of God. Uh, before I read the passage of Scripture this morning, I, I want to, uh, I just want to acknowledge the fact that the honeymoon is over. I mean, can we say that? The honeymoon is over. I mean, when we first started this whole shelter-in-place thing and we were doing online church, uh, we didn't like it. We didn't like the fact that we weren't meeting personally and, and having our mass gatherings. Uh, but at the same time, we didn't hate it. Uh, there was a novelty about it, and there was an excitement about it. And, and um, you know, there was just an excitement about being a part of online church. Uh, that, I think, that excitement has worn off. The honeymoon has worn off. And now we're tired. I mean, I know I'm tired. I hit the wall this week. And part of the reason why I hit the wall is because it seems like we're doing twice as much work for half as much of the reward. And uh, I mean, it takes from Sunday after service, we start working on the next week's service, and it takes all week long, seven days, just to get ready for one Sunday service. So, I mean, it's hard for everybody. And we're seeing it, you know, congregationally as well. We're seeing the, the uh, numbers are starting to decrease in terms of community group participation, uh, Wednesday night prayer attendance, Sunday morning attendance as well. We're seeing the numbers start to decrease. And of course, I'm not saying there's so many of you who are being really faithful, and that's really exciting. Uh, but the fact of the matter is, uh, many of us are getting real tired of this shelter-in-place thing. We're getting real tired of this lock-in. We're tired of not going to the mall, not going to restaurants, not going to the movies, and not going to church, not visiting our friends. Uh, we're just sick of this stuff and we need this to end right now because we want to get back to normal. Can I get a witness? Well, I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but before the good news of the gospel comes, the bad news has to come. And the bad news is that we're not going back to normal anytime soon. And in fact, uh, there's a good argument, a good chance that the normal that we knew pre-COVID-19 doesn't exist anymore. You see, there's moments in human history that change us forever. Uh, the last such moment was 9-11. Uh, many of you are too young to remember that before 9-11, you could actually, actually walk your family member all the way up to the gate at the airport. There was no security check. You just walked into the airport, walked all the way up to the gate, said goodbye to your family member. All you did was show your ID and your ticket at the gate and you got on the plane. I remember after 9-11 going to the airport and seeing the security check and all these lines and all of this nonsense. And I was like, man, this has to be temporary. I hope this is over soon. Well, uh, guess what? It was not temporary. It was a permanent change. And in fact, we can never go back to the pre-9-11 world. Well, the fact of the matter is we're going to see that we will never be able to go back to the pre-COVID-19 world a new normal is going to emerge after this crisis is over, and we honestly don't know what that new normal is going to look like. Now, I know that's not what you wanted to hear. Uh, what you wanted to hear is that things are going to go back to normal uh, pretty soon, but in actuality, we don't know what normal looks like anymore. And I say this because many of us are, are, are sick and tired of being locked in and of dealing with this new COVID-19 world and we don't realize that we're in a dangerous place. You see, you are never in such a dangerous place as you are in when you are frustrated. Because frustration gives birth to desperation, and desperation can give birth to, to every kind of evil that can not only derail your destiny, but destroy your intimacy with God. Because in the moment of your frustration, whenever you're at the place where you are sick and tired of your present reality, you come to that place where you say, I can't handle this for another minute. 
the enemy is always close by with a ready solution. Now the purpose of this series and the reason why we've positioned this six-part series called Not Today Satan right now at this moment is because I want to number one expose the tactics of Satan and number two inspire and empower you to identify his works and to rise up and say not today Satan whatever you plan for me to destroy see in this season if you're not aware of the enemy's devices he will destroy your destiny and his tactics are deception and temptation his objective is to destroy your destiny but his tactics are deception and temptation and so in this series we're going to expose the deception of the enemy and we're going to expose the temptations of the enemy so as to inspire and empower you to rise up and say not today Satan not today amen now the question is what do you need to know in order to uh, be empowered to say not today Satan effectively uh, so we're gonna turn to Matthew chapter 4 and we're gonna discover it and as you turn to Matthew chapter 4 I'm gonna give you just a little bit of background a little bit of context <clears throat> Matthew chapter 4 is the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness, but this happens right after the baptism of Jesus in the Jordan River in Matthew chapter 3. He's baptized by John in the Jordan River. The heavens part, the Spirit descends upon him like a dove, and the Father speaks from heaven and says, This is my beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased. Now we go to Matthew chapter 4, verse 1, and this is what the Scripture says. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness, to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, afterward he was hungry. Now when the tempter came to him, he said, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Let's pray. Father, I pray today that you'd speak to us by your word and by your spirit, and that you would expose the work of the enemy in each and every life and give victory in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, we're going to break down this passage of Scripture just one piece at a time. I believe we're going somewhere. This is important today. First of all, the Scripture begins by saying, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit. I want to notice that word up for a second. Jesus was led up by the Spirit. The Spirit was leading Jesus. And where was the Spirit leading Jesus? The Spirit was leading Jesus upward to a higher place. Now, when we hear that the Spirit is leading him up, we anticipate that the Spirit's leading him up to a mountaintop. But what we're going to discover in the next verse is that the Spirit is leading him up to the desert, up to the wilderness, which doesn't seem to make sense because the desert or the wilderness is down. Even geographically in Israel at that time, the wilderness was down. Even topologically, it was down. But the, the, but the word says the Spirit led him up. It's interesting that what seems to be up to us is not necessarily up to God and what seems to be down to us is not always down to God sometimes it looks like we're going down but God says you're going up 
Sometimes it looks like you're going up, but God, in God's perspective, you're actually moving down. And we need to keep in mind as we walk through this story, as we journey through this passage of Scripture, that Jesus was moving upward and not downward. That what was happening to him was about elevation and not about uh, it was not about his life falling apart, his destiny falling apart. This was not a bad thing. This is not a terrible situation. Actually, what's happening in your life as well, even though you're in a wilderness period, and even though we are in a wilderness period, we're going to look back and realize that God was leading us upward and not downward in this season. Jesus was led up by the Spirit. This is the foundation of the entire passage of Scripture. Jesus was led by the Spirit. The foundation of your victory, the foundation of my victory, is being led by the Spirit of God. If you are not led by the Spirit of God, you don't pass go, you don't collect $200. There is no victory that does not come from being led by the Spirit. Now to be led by the Spirit means to be led by the Spirit of God and not by my own understanding. It means to be led by the Spirit of God and not by my own interpretation of reality. To be led by the Spirit, I must surrender my own agenda. To be led by the Spirit, I must surrender my own plan. To be led by the Spirit, I must say, God, not my will, but your will be done. Romans 8:14, I believe it is, says, those who are led by the Spirit, these are the sons of God. And so to be the children of God, it means to be led by the Spirit. It means that if you are a child of God, you have a right to be led by the Spirit of God. And this whole thing happened because Jesus was led by the Spirit. And the foundation of your victory as a believer in Jesus Christ is being led by the Spirit. Now, where was he led by the Spirit? He was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Uh, seems antithetical because I always think if the Spirit is leading me, He's leading me to a good place, or at least a place that I perceive to be good. If the Spirit is leading me, He's leading me to a place of victory. If the Spirit is leading me, He's leading me into a situation that is obviously good. And oftentimes when something falls apart in our lives, we tend to assume, see, that must not have been God, must not have been the Spirit of God. Not necessarily. Sometimes the Spirit leads you into a place that doesn't look good to you, but maybe God knows something you don't know. Maybe the Holy Spirit knows something you don't know. It's best to suspend judgment and simply do the best we can each and every day to be led by the Spirit of God. You know, that, that word uh, wilderness or desert in another translation, it's the Greek word eremos. He was led by the Spirit into the eremos. The Eremos, the Eremos. And that word in the Greek means a solitary place, a lonely place, a place where you are deprived of the presence and aid of others. The Eremos, the word Eremos means a solitary place, a lonely place, a place where you are deprived of the presence and aid of others. Does that sound familiar? Does, do you think this is relevant to where we are right now? Is it relevant to your personal experience right now? Jesus was led by the Spirit into the Eremos. That is, Jesus was sheltering in place for 40 days, not because of some government mandate, but he self-selected this 40 days of isolation simply because he was led by the Spirit to do so. You see, the place 
the Eremos for Jesus was not a place that he was confined to. It wasn't, it wasn't a circumstantial place that he was driven to. It wasn't a place where, that he was restricted to. It was a place that he chose. He chose to be led by the Spirit into the Eremos. He chose this. It was a place that he self-selected. And which means that the wilderness didn't happen to Jesus. Jesus happened to the wilderness. You see, oftentimes we feel trapped by our circumstances in the wilderness. Jesus didn't feel trapped by his circumstances in the wilderness. He made a decision. The Spirit is leading me here. I'm going to cooperate with the Spirit. Now, the author of the book of Hebrews says that we should endure hardship as discipline because God is treating us like sons. That is, we must cooperate with the work of the Spirit. When the Spirit is leading us into the wilderness, we must cooperate with the work of the Spirit. Jesus, and what we're going to find in the life of Jesus is even after his 40 days is up in the wilderness, he goes to the wilderness again and again and again. Matter of fact, Luke chapter 5 verse 16 tells us that Jesus often withdrew to the Eremos to pray. You see, the Eremos was the place Jesus chose. It was the place where he, he, he had such a time of empowerment in those 40 days in the wilderness that he determined, you know what? Every time I'm at a critical place in my ministry, I'm going to go back there every day. And matter of fact, the Eremos was a place that Jesus self-selected on a daily basis. On a daily basis, he would wake up early in the morning before anyone woke up, and he would go isolate himself to pray and to seek the face of God. It was not a place that he was longing to get out of. It was a place where he was drawing strength. It was a place where he was finding a deeper intimacy with God than ever before. You see, sometimes we're led by the Spirit in our circumstances and we don't even know it. We think our circumstance is driving us somewhere when in reality, it's the Holy Spirit that's leading us somewhere. We must be led by the Spirit of God. But why would God lead Jesus into the Eremos, into the lonely place? into the desert place. Well, Matthew tells us why. To be tempted by the devil. To be tempted by the devil. There was a purpose. God led him there with a purpose. And the purpose was to be tempted by the devil so that he would be tempted by the devil. I want, I want to let that sink in for a second. Just, just think about that. It says, the spirit led him into the wilderness so that he would be tempted by the devil. The purpose was to be tempted. Why would God lead you into a place of temptation? Doesn't the Lord's Prayer say, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil? So why would the Father lead Jesus into a place to be tempted by the devil. There is a clear distinction that we find in Scripture. We see it in James 1 as well. God cannot be tempted, nor does he tempt anyone to sin. So God does not tempt us to sin, but God does allow us to be tempted. And the question is, why would God allow us to be tempted? Jesus was led into the wilderness because temptation was an important component of the fulfillment of his destiny. If you are going to fulfill your destiny, there is a certain degree of temptation that you must walk through. 
You can't avoid it. And I know you feel like when you feel tempted, that means you're weak. When you feel tempted, you might even feel like even the temptation means you failed. No. Temptation doesn't mean you're weak and temptation doesn't mean you failed. It simply means that you've entered into a wilderness season in which you must endure the temptation of the enemy because overcoming this temptation of the enemy is an important component of the fulfillment of your destiny. Let me tell you what happens every time you're in the wilderness. There are two purposes, two plans, two objectives that are at play simultaneously. When you are in the wilderness, Satan comes to tempt you, but God to test you. Satan is tempting you, and God is testing you. First thing you need to know, when God allows you to be tempted, he's testing you. But God never allows a test that you are not prepared for. No good teacher gives you a test that the teacher has not prepared you for in advance. And God is a good teacher. He never sends you into a test that he doesn't expect you to pass. Which means that if you are feeling tempted, you should take heart because it means God has prepared you for this moment. It means that God has given you everything you need to stand the test. And secondly, when God allows you to walk into a test, he expects you to pass. And not only does he expect you to pass the test, but he gives you the, pest, the, the test so that he might qualify you for the elevation of your destiny. God is trying to release you into a higher level of your destiny, but the enemy is tempting you because he is trying to derail your destiny. You get to choose in the moment of temptation whose plan you are gonna honor. You literally get to choose whose plan is going to play out in my life today. Is it the enemy's plan or is it God's plan? You get to choose. Temptation is important. Satan's goal is destruction. John 10.10 10 says, The thief comes not but for to steal, to kill, and to destroy. But I have come so that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. Jesus said this. The thief comes. He's got an objective. He wants to steal, kill, and destroy you. He wants to derail your destiny and destroy your intimacy with God and take everything from you and leave you with nothing. But God said, I've come so that you might have life and that you might have it to the full. Now, it's interesting that the scripture says he was being tempted by the devil, the Diablo. It's interesting that uh, the devil is often called Satan. And the word Satan and the word devil mean two different things, two different Greek terms. Actually, Satan is a Hebrew term, and it means adversary or one who comes against. So. He comes as Satan to stop you and to oppose you when you're pursuing your destiny. But he comes as the devil, the word diablo in the Greek, diabolos in the Greek, sorry, diablo, that's Spanish. <laughs> diabolos in the Greek, it means accuser, right? Slanderer or false accuser. So when he comes as the devil, he's coming to accuse you or to slander you or to accuse God or to slander God. That is, when he comes as the devil, he wants to deceive you so that you don't believe that you are who God says you are and that you don't believe that God is who God says he is. He comes to bring a false accusation against you and against God. So he's tempted by the devil, which means the tactic of the temptation 
is going to first be, in other words, before temptation comes slander and accusation. And then once you believe the slander and accusation, then the temptation comes, and the word tempt means to solicit to sin. And we're going to see that in a moment. Right? All right, moving on. It goes on to say, and when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights. What's he doing in the wilderness? What's his activity in the wilderness? It actually doesn't tell us what he's doing in the wilderness. It tells us what he's not doing in the wilderness. You see, when you are in the wilderness, you often hit a place where you don't know what to do. You don't know which way to turn. You don't know which way to go. If you've lost your job, you're in a place where you don't know what to do. You don't know which way to go, which way to turn. If you're, if you've, you're suffering uh, symptoms of the virus or any type of sickness, you probably don't know what to do. You don't know which way to turn. If you've got family members that you're separated from that you're concerned about, you don't know what to do. There's a hundred different reasons why right now you might feel like you don't know what to do. You don't know where to turn. When you are in a time in which you don't know what to do and you don't know where to turn, let me give you a piece of advice. Focus on what you are not going to do. Jesus got to the wilderness. We're going to be here for 40 days. What am I going to do? Well, I know what I'm not going to do. What I'm not going to do is focus on indulging my flesh. If the Father has separated me, what I'm not going to do is look for replacement connections. If the Father has taken this piece of joy from me, I'm not going to look for a replacement joy. If the Father has taken this particular pleasure from me, I'm not going to look for a replacement pleasure. What I'm not going to do is sit here and indulge myself. What I'm not going to do is spend the next 40 days uh, binging Netflix. What I'm not going to do is spend the next 40 days uh, just uh, internet surfing or on social media. I'm not going to look for in, uh, 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 instruments of dopamine release that are, are going to satisfy me. Uh, that's what I'm not going to do. Jesus decided what I'm going to do is fast. And fasting is simply about determining what you're not going to do and sticking to that. Why is this important? Because to be led by the Spirit means to identify what the Spirit is doing and then cooperate. If God is separating me, I'm going to cooperate by separating myself. If God is connecting me, I'm going to cooperate by connecting myself. Jesus says, God is separating me to the wilderness. I'm going to separate myself from food. Isn't it interesting? There was no food in the wilderness. But it didn't say he was out there with no food and he was starving. No, it said he was fasting. Fasting is intentional. In other words, he, Jesus could have said, I'm out here hungry because there's no food. Instead, he says, no, no, no. I'm not hungry because there's no food. I'm fasting. It's a decision. It's intentional. That is, he took a facet of his situation that could have been seen as oppression and simply made it intentional. I've been there before. I remember when I was a seminary student, I woke up in the morning and I had no food to eat and I had no money. And I said, you know what? I'm fasting today. In other words, I'm going to take a situation that looks like oppression and turn it into intention. You, you need to tweak that. Or, or just think on that for a second. What's happening in your life right now that you're kicking against the goads and you see it as oppression, but you can transform it into intention? He was fasting. Fasting is the removal of every distraction that would dull your senses. 
Fasting is the removal of every distraction that would dull your senses. You see, Jesus was fasting because he knew that temptation was coming. And he knew that in order to face temptation, he would have to be alert. He would have to be awake. He knew that if he spent all his time crying about his situation and all his time uh, daydreaming about better days and all his time uh, wishing and, and, and mourning the loss of the things that he lost, if he spent all his time doing that, he would be asleep when the tempter came. He knew that he had to be alert. And so he separated himself from all distractions. He knew that he had to be self-controlled and alert so that when the tempter came, he could stand the test. It says, And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, afterward he was hungry. Now this is the most vulnerable place. You see, when you fast, especially if you ever go on an extended fast, uh, the hunger pains go away at a certain point. And, you know, like let's say if you just did a water fast for a while, you first, you know, two to five days, uh, you would go through weakness, headaches, you'd have no strength, you just want to lay in bed all day, uh, hunger pains would be off the charts, you might even go through some dizziness, or, uh, I mean, you would have all kinds of symptoms. You'd be dreaming about ham sandwiches, you'd be, you know, it, it's the worst days. But by day six and day seven, the hunger pains start to subside and you feel strong again, actually strong enough to go about your daily activities. Somewhere around day 10, you actually start to feel like you could fast indefinitely. Like you could go on like this forever. It's no problem at all. Once the hunger pains come back after that, it's time to end your fast and eat. Why? Because it means that you have, your body has eaten up all of its fat stores and now is beginning to feed on living flesh. So for some of us, not us, some of you who are really, really thin, uh, you can't fast for 40 days. You just can't do it. You'll go into starvation, you know, maybe by day 12 to 15. Uh, some of us that got a little bit of cushion, we might be able to make it 21 days. Uh, but it takes someone with a lot of cushion uh, to make it 40 days. Um, and so Jesus goes 40 days. And mind you, this was a supernatural fast because he had no water, no food, no water. By the way, don't try that. Do not do that. After three days of no water, you die, okay? This is a supernatural fast, which means for 40 days, Jesus is actually supernaturally sustained in the wilderness. But on the 40th day, the supernatural lifts, and all of a sudden, he feels the full extent of his hunger, which means he goes into starvation. We say it all the time, I'm starving. No, you are not. Jesus was starving at this moment. And notice that the tempter doesn't come until his hunger is at its peak. Hunger is a dangerous moment. It's dangerous but it's also the most opportune moment for God to break through in your life. When God brings you to the place of hunger, where you experience real hunger, you're going to go one way or the other. You're going to go head first after the flesh, or you're going to go head first after God. But you cannot remain on the fence anymore 
when you come to that place of hunger. Now, the scripture says, when the tempter came to him. Notice he goes from being called the devil to the tempter. The one who solicits sin. Notice the first thing he's going to try to do when he speaks is accuse. And then the second thing he's going to try to do is solicit sin. At this place where you're sick and tired and you're frustrated and you feel trapped, it's a dangerous moment because the tempter is standing nearby with a ready solution. He's got an answer for you. He's got a way out for you. Don't you dare take it. Don't you dare take it. What does he say? He said, listen to this. If you are the Son of God, if you are the Son of God, there's a very subtle accusation here. Implicit in this statement, if you are the Son of God, is that you may not be. I'm not sure if you are. If you are, prove it. If you are the Son of God, prove it. It's interesting that the enemy comes, the enemy will try to push you into play, to a place where you have to prove what you already are. I mean, think about it. If you're from Mexico, like you're Mexican-Mexican, like you were born in Mexico, and you got two Mexican parents, and Spanish is your first language. But somebody came to you and said, if you're a real Mexican, make me some tacos right now. If, if you're a real Mexican, you'd be like, you would probably just laugh and walk away. Like, I don't have to prove my Mexicanness to you. Matter of fact, even if I don't know how to make tacos, it doesn't change the fact that I'm a Mexican, right? Okay, uh, bad analogy, but you get my point. It's the same thing that the, that the enemy did in the garden. It's the same thing Satan did in the, gar in the garden, right? When he comes to Eve and says, um, did God really say that you'll surely die? God knows that in the day you eat of this fruit, you'll be like him. Well, wait, you already are like him, Eve. The accusation of the enemy is very subtle. He looks for a way to subtly suggest that you're not who God says you are. He looks for a way to subtly suggest that God is not who He says He is. He looks for a way to subtly suggest that you don't have what God said you have. He looks for a way to subtly suggest that God has not given you what He says He's given you. If, if you're the Son of God, if you are the Son of God, and in that simple statement, if you are the Son of God, seven words, he called into question the identity of Jesus. And when someone calls your identity into question, something rises up on the inside of you to prove yourself. This is the temptation. Prove yourself. If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. Now here's the actual temptation. Show how powerful you are by making provision for yourself. Embedded in this temptation is an accusation against the Father. The if you are the Son of God part is a subtle accusation against Jesus. I don't think you really are who you say you are. And then turn these stones to bread, command these stones to bread, embedded in that is an accusation against the Father. The Father hasn't provided for you. 
You see what Satan is actually, and it's really brilliant when you think, you, you don't understand, you know, a lot of times we, we belittle the devil. We say, that devil, he's nothing, blah, blah. He's smarter than you think. And you got to understand how smart he is, how sly he is, how subtle he is, or else you're going to be outsmarted by him before you know it. What he tries to do is suggest. He just drops these suggestions. And the suggestion, and to turn these stones to bread, that temptation, the suggestion is, the Father hasn't given you what you need. He left you out here with nothing. You see, you see what he's trying to do? Jesus already made the decision to think about his time in the desert in one way. I'm not hungry, I'm fasting. Now the enemy is subtly trying to move him to a place where he thinks about it a different way. I'm not fasting, I'm hungry. There's an accusation there. The devil is here trying to get Jesus to think differently about his time in the wilderness, and he's constantly fighting for your interpretation of your time in your wilderness. You see, the Father had separated him. The enemy tried to convince him that the Father had abandoned him. The enemy wants you to think differently about your season. The enemy wants you to think the Father has abandoned you when the Father has actually separated you. You see, the enemy has, has succeeded in deceiving you if you feel deprived. The moment you hit the place where you feel deprived, bereft, abandoned, or rejected by God, the enemy has succeeded in deceiving you. Since the Father is not feeding you, the Father is not giving you any bread, take bread for yourself. Command these stones to become bread. You can do it. Come on. You're the Son of God. You can do it. And do you see what the temptation is? Shift from the Spirit into the flesh. Shift from the place where you're waiting on God for direction to the place where you're taking matters into your own hand. Shift from the place where you're receiving your provision from God to the place where you're procuring your provision for yourself. Shift from the place where you're trusting God for His timing. Because Jesus knew all the way up to this moment, He knew that the Spirit led me here for a particular amount of time. And there's one thing, see the enemy can't get you to curse God, he can't get you to, you know, de destroy, to re renounce your faith. But what he can get you to do is take what God has destined you to have already, but before the time. I got to get through this. Turn these stones to bread. Now watch this. But he answered and said, it is written. You hear that? Jesus answered and said, it is written. I like the first word of that verse, but he answered and said, it is written. This was his weapon. It is written. This was his weapon against the temptation of the enemy. This was his victory. It is written. He was able to stand in the face of the devil. He was victorious over the temptation of the devil because he did not forget what was written. It is 
written. At the end of the day, you have no power to stand against the temptation of the enemy unless you can remember what is written, unless you can maintain your connection to the truth of the word of God. It is written. And when he said it is written, he was saying not today, Satan. It is written. You see, if you forget what is written, Satan is able to replace what is written with his own suggestions. If you forget what is written, then you'll feel abandoned by God when God separates you. If you forget what is written, you'll feel rejected by God when God tests you. If you forget what is written, you will feel disappointed by God when God disciplines you. If you forget what is written, if you forget what is written, there is no victory over the devil that does not come through what is written in the word of God. And if you want to have the power to rise up against the wiles of the devil and say, not today, Satan, you must remain conscious of what is written. It is written. And then he quotes Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 2 and following. He says, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. You've got to go to Deuteronomy chapter 8 and read that whole passage. Moses is preaching this sermon to the people of Israel after they've come through the wilderness. They've spent 40 years in the wilderness, and they're on the verge of entering into the promised land. Moses is giving his last series of sermons, and he says, Remember how the Lord your God led you in the wilderness these 40 years to humble you and to test you in order to see what was in your heart, whether or not you would obey his commands. Listen to this. He humbled you, causing you to hunger, and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your fathers had known, to teach you that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Jesus is in the wilderness and he's saying, I'm not going to eat the bread of my own making. It is written. I'm going to feed on the word of the Father. It is written. You know, I'm going through a really peculiar season right now because I have two strong drives that I believe are from the Spirit of the Lord. The first drive is to fast. And you know, when, the, when we ended the fast, I didn't end my fast. I'm still fasting and I'm going to be fasting. I'm supposed to be fasting till May 12th. That's what I felt led of the spirit to do. And I'm on a 40 day fast right now. I'm just doing liquids. Uh, I'm doing some broth and, and so forth. But um, so I, I just feel led of the spirit to fast. But secondly, I feel led of the spirit to make bread. And so I've been going through the process of learning to make bread. And uh, first I had to make a, a sourdough starter, and that took seven days. I mean, first I had to find bread flour, and that took a couple of weeks, you know, searching Amazon every day until finally some came available. I bought, I bought a 50-pound bag of bread flour. And then uh, I, I had to learn how to make a sourdough starter, and that takes seven days. And every day you, 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 just, you start by mixing some flour and water in a jar, and then you wait. 24 hours later, you pour out about 80% of it, 
and then you refill it with fresh flour and water and add it to that 20%, that's weight, stir it up, and then wait 24 hours. You keep repeating that every 24 hours and it just ferments and you're feeding it with the fresh. So you're getting rid of the old and you're feeding it with the fresh. You're getting rid of the old and you're feeding it with the fresh. And by the seventh day, now your sourdough starter is ready. You're ready to make bread. And I remember that first day making that first bread, taking that starter, instead of throwing it away now, you mix it in with some fresh you know, flour and you make your bread with that, with the sour. But even then, making just one loaf of sourdough bread took 24 hours. I wasn't, I, man, it's just all of this making. And it's interesting, I'm making all these loaves of bread, but I'm not eating any of it. God is showing me, I'm going to show you, I'm going to teach you about the bread that I provide by taking you th through this process of making bread the product of the process is the process. You know, when we cook, it's so that we can eat. But God says, no, no, you're not going to cook so you can eat. You're going to cook so you can see. This is the process. Just, just as you have to feed that starter, you have to feed your faith with the Word of God. And this is what's crazy. Sourdough starter, you have a choice. If you want it to feed you every day, you've got to feed it every day. If you feed it every day, you can use the, the leftover to make a new batch of bread every day. But if you only want to feed it once a week, it'll feed you once a week. You just keep it in the fridge. So if you're feeding it every day, you keep it on the counter. If you feed it once a week, you put it in the fridge so that it ferments more slowly. If you feed it once a month, you keep it in the freezer and you take it out the day before you want to use it again. You know, a lot of us, our faith, our faith is like that starter. But for a lot of us, your faith, you only feed it once a month and you keep it in the freezer. You feed it just enough to keep it barely alive. And the Lord was showing me through this, this process of making the starter and making this bread. Number one, I want you to feed your faith every day. But number two, I want you to use your faith every day. Because you not only have to feed it, you can't just add new flour and water to the, the starter. You have to remove 80% or 90% of it and then replace it and add new flour and water to the 10% that's left. If you don't use it and you don't feed it, it dies. And God always has fresh, fresh bread for us. He's, he's always making us fresh bread, but you've got to feed your starter. You've got to feed your starter. Your faith is your starter. And you've got to feed it with the word of God. And Jesus says, the starter that I'm feeding is my faith, and, the, and I'm feeding it with the Word of God. The starter you're feeding is your flesh, because your flesh is like starter too. And you're feeding the flesh every day. And guess what? The flesh is feeding you every day. And you're feeding it every day, and it's feeding you every day. But God says, stop feeding your flesh and start feeding your faith. Feed it with the, with the Word of God. Feed it with prayer, the flower of the Word and the water of prayer. Feed your faith. Feed that starter every day. Keep it on the counter. Take it out of the fridge. Some of you got to stop feeding your faith only once a week in these Sunday sermons when you get the message. Stop feeding your faith only once a month. Take it out of the freezer. Take it out of the fridge. Put it on the counter and start working with it each and every day. Jesus said, I'm not living by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of of God. Listen, Jesus survived the wilderness because he was meditating on the Word. And meditating on the Word is simply the practice of remaining conscious of what God has said. We so soon forget the simple things that God has said. It's the practice. The practice. But in order to do that, you must exchange the bread of the world for the bread of the Spirit. You've got to stop eating the bread of the flesh and begin eating 
the bread of the Spirit. You who are searching for satisfaction, search no more. You who are seeking fulfillment, seek no further. You who are longing for pleasure, your longing is fulfilled only in the presence of the living God. You see, today God is inviting us to eat the bread of the presence. But in order to eat it, you must surrender the bread that you have fed yourself. The bread that you have been eating for so many years. You gotta put it aside and come sit at the table of the Lord. He says, I've got bread for you that's better than any bread that you've ever tasted. I've got bread that will actually satisfy the deepest longing of your soul. Matter of fact, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Jesus is the bread of life and he wants you to feed on him today. But you've gotta put aside the bread of your own making and understand that at this moment when we're sheltering in place and we're isolated and we're set apart and we're being sanctified by God, cooperate with the work of the Spirit. Turn off Netflix and turn off social media and give your attention to the Spirit of God and to the power of God and, God and, and sit at the table with God and let Him feed you with that heavenly bread, that bread that He rains down from heaven to feed His sons and daughters in the wilderness. You'll eat it and you will never, ever hunger again. God has not abandoned you. God has not isolated you. God has separated you. He has set you apart for Himself. Let's pray. Precious Heavenly Father, I pray today in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ that those who hear this message today would be given an ear to hear. And I say, let him who has an ear to hear, let him hear. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would awaken every heart and every soul to the reality that what we truly hunger and thirst for is you and that you are the bread of life. God, I pray that you would give us the resolve today to push aside the bread of the world and to pull into our focus the bread of heaven, the bread of life, and that we would feed our faith every day with the Word of God. While our heads are bowed, eyes are closed, no one's looking around, and I know you can't anyway. I want to ask, is there anyone listening to my voice today that you say, this message is for me? You're speaking right to my soul. You're speaking right to my heart. You're listening to me today, and you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. You have never actually tasted of the bread of life and you say, I'm ready today. I don't know how to do it, but I'm ready to say, I want to do it. I'm ready to intentionally, as an act of my will say, I'm pushing aside the bread of the world and I'm reaching for the bread of life. I need Jesus. If that's you, I'm just asking you to pray this simple prayer with me. Just say it, and I'm asking everybody to say it together this morning. Just say, Jesus, I come to you. And I confess that you are the bread of life. Lord, I have sought to turn stones to bread for my entire life. I've been eating the bread of my own making. But today, I want to eat the bread of life. The bread that only you can bring me. Jesus, today, I trust you 
for my salvation. Today, I ask you, forgive me of my sins. Make me new and make me alive. Fill me with your Holy Spirit and I give you all the glory in your holy name. Amen. Amen. Amen and amen. Listen, if you prayed that prayer, I'm just going to ask you to drop into the chat. I prayed the prayer. Just drop into the chat and just type those words. I prayed the prayer. Make it public. Why? Because you can't do this Christian life on your own. Just drop it in the chat. I prayed the prayer. And you know what? When we see that, we're going to be praying for you. And there's going to be somebody to pray for you and to come alongside you. We're here for you. We believe for you. But listen, God has more for you than you can imagine. He's inviting us each and every day to come and eat of the bread of life. And I don't know about you, but I can't wait to get another dose of that bread today. I can't go another day without more of the bread of life. God bless you. Have a wonderful day. We love you. Amen.